Some time ago, my friend Mike called me and said, Steve, I have a message for you. You have to make a podcast. It's very important. Do it now. And I said, okay, I will. Can you provide me with extra time to do that during my busy schedule? He said he couldn't do that. But then I managed to free up some time. So here's my podcast, Audio Chimera. This is episode number 35, but I really want to direct. That's the standard joke in the theater, TV, and movies. I really want to direct. I still have a cartoon somewhere that has two dogs in a TV commercial set, flanking a dog food bowl, and having a conversation. And that's exactly what one says to the other. And it's true for me. I've always wanted to direct, from my first crazy Super 8 silent film in high school, until now. By the way, search for Duel in the Park on YouTube. In a way, not being allowed to direct at my first college really urged me on to transfer to a much better education at Temple University. I never regretted that move. But sometimes, my attempts to find directing jobs have led to some odd encounters. When I was living in Berkeley, I discovered that a playwright was starting a new theater company. Her idea was that playwrights would be connected to interested directors. They might work together on the script, perhaps do a play reading, then workshop the play, and maybe all this would lead to a production. I guess I saw an ad in some art publication or something. So I connected with the person organizing the group, and by the way, this was in the days before widespread email use, so I had to call on the phone. The playwright's idea for the initial meetup was to host a dessert potluck at her house. Great idea! My wife baked a chocolate cake and frosted it with chocolate icing for the event. We arrived at the woman's house, cake in hand. We then made a series of discoveries. 1. The main playwright, our host and organizer, and the person who suggested the dessert potluck was diabetic. She could eat none of the desserts on the table. 2. She owned a dog, but apparently he wasn't diabetic, because at some point early on, he began licking the chocolate frosting off the cake. The rest of us did not eat that cake. 3. There were only four people present. There was me, the potential director, my wife, there for moral support and to experience the evening along with me, and probably to keep an eye on this female playwright in case she decided to be attracted to me. There were no worries there. Besides being all business, the woman appeared to be heavily medicated. She was the third, and a male playwright, whose play I believe detailed the life of some notorious Nazi homosexual officer during World War II, rounded out this quartet. We eventually ate some of the other desserts the two playwrights had provided, had a delightful chat, and then we left. I took a copy of the woman's play to read, and in fact, it was quite good. I still recall the title, though to protect her identity and that of her canine companion, I won't disclose it here. Update. I just did a Google search on her, and while I did find her name associated with playwriting, the play I read did not appear as a result. So that evening was a bust as far as getting other directing gigs was concerned. 
However, I was not deterred, and about a year later, I answered an ad for a position as a community theater director. I phoned and secured an interview. That day, I went to work with my wife, who did postdoctoral research at the University of California, Davis. We only had the one car, so the most efficient thing was for me to accompany her, use the Davis Library, and then on our return trip, stop at a suburban home in Vallejo for the interview. It is important to note that, for her research, my wife was working on a strain of dystrophic chickens. Her research sought a cure for muscular dystrophy, as it had when she was a grad student at Pitt. That was when she discovered she was allergic to mice. Her postdoc made me realize I was allergic to chickens. On this particular night, my wife had several eggs that she needed to watch for hatching. So she put an incubator with the eggs in the back floor of our unair-conditioned Toyota Tercel. Often driving to Davis with the windows down felt like we were driving into a hairdryer. Fortunately, Vallejo was quite hot, so having the incubator unplugged for the duration of the trip did not set back the hatching time. Side note, we decided to have relations that night, and our afterglow was eventually interrupted by chirping from the kitchen counter. This is still better than the time our cuddling was interrupted by her jumping out of bed after declaring, There's a dead chicken in my purse! She had forgotten to drop it in the dead animal repository before leaving campus. I don't remember much about the interview itself, and I never heard anything from them. Closer to Berkeley, at another community theater, I attended a production of Harvey, the show about the guy and the six-foot-tall rabbit, and then talked to the company's owner-slash-artistic director. He took my resume, and we had a spirited discussion about dramatic art, agreeing that theater acting was more theatrical than acting for the camera. Things seemed to go very well. Then I never heard anything more from him. And finally, there was Pirates of Penzance. That was an experience and a half for a lot of reasons. I started off this episode with another list, so let's go through the reasons this show was crazy by the numbers. 1. I had a lot of very fun and cool ideas for the staging of this show. Some of them even survived to the production. Like the Pirate King giving the modern Major General a pirate flag and the MMG waving his hand fan at it to make it fly. Hilarious! 2. Less hilarious, I blocked the curtain call, which included my handshake with the conductor of the chamber orchestra. When he shook my hand in rehearsal, he asked, Why are we doing this? He didn't seem to have a clue what my role had been. 3. That confusion seemed to extend to the soprano who had hired me to direct. For some reason, I needed to miss two rehearsals, during which time she restaged several scenes. 4. She also strongly suggested that there be more blocking during her duet with the tenor lead. I thought they should just concentrate on singing, and the audience should just concentrate on listening to their voices, but she wanted some touching or dancing. Was that happening outside of rehearsal even more so? Perhaps. Or so it was rumored. 5. My wife helped with the makeup for the show. She offered to help the lead tenor, and so he sat on a folding chair, opened his legs in a Y, and let her stand between them to apply his makeup. When she offered to do his makeup for the second performance, he said, Yes, do me again like you did last night. 
six, and finally, the piece de resistance, as they say, was on the loadout from the theater. Someone drove the rental truck into the pigeon-infested parking garage and got the cab wedged under a concrete beam. We had no idea what to do until one of the singers urged everyone to come out of the theater to stand on the truck. The weight managed to lower the cab enough to back that truck up. I guess it's true what they say. It ain't over until the fat lady gets on the truck to weigh it down and back it up. Anything you want to hear more about from this podcast? I can elaborate. Just send your request to stephenschramm at musifier.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-C-H-R-U-M at musifier, M-U-S-O-F-Y-R.com. Or leave a message at 724-835-4074, and I'll see what I can do. I receive no cash for products I mentioned, but please feel free to throw money at me to advertise here. For more information on my works, check out my website, musifier.com. For written works, search for me on Smashwords as Stephen Schramm or Musifier, or find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. This is Stephen Schramm. Thanks for listening to Audio Chimera. <laughs>